My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 114b, Defining the Horizons. Today, we explore some extra material cut from the previous two episodes. If, like me, you enjoy the nitty-gritty of these historical tales, sit back and enjoy a short chapter about Akhenaten's mindset around years 5 and 6 of his reign. This episode is brought to you by Stephen C. and Eric R., who became patrons of the podcast. Also, thank you to Rob Wotherspoon, Joseph Kurtz, and Roger Suss in gratitude for your donations. Folks, thank you so much for your support. I hope that R10 will smile upon you, making your crops flourish in the soil. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. The year was approximately 1357 BCE, regnal year 6 under the majesty of Akhenaten, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, devoted servant, effective son of the solar god. The king was preparing to move full-time to the royal residence he had established a year earlier, and which was now taking shape in the dusty, arid plains of Amarna. Akhenaten and the city of Amarna go hand-in-hand, like Hemingway and Paris, or Winnie the Pooh and the Hundred Acre Wood. Seriously? That's the comparison you're going with? They're so closely associated that you'd be forgiven for thinking the pharaoh always planned to build his new city. But that would be a mistake. Looking back on his early years, there's really no indication that Akhenaten had intended to leave Thebes. If he did, he kept that quiet, or the evidence has disappeared so thoroughly we may never know. Whatever the cause, the king's first five years in power imply that he was quite happy in the southern city, quite willing to remain there, until all of a sudden he wasn't. We've looked at Akhenaten's early monuments, most notably the Gemet Pa'aten and Hut Benben shrines at Karnak. But there were other structures in that community, great projects intended to glorify the pharaoh and make his mark on the cityscape. There was also another monument which I haven't mentioned yet. In the hills west of Thebes, Akhenaten had already started a tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Technically speaking, this pharaoh does have a grave in the famous royal necropolis, or at least he has the beginnings of one. In the western valley, near to the tomb of Amunhotep III, a small monument dug into the rocks is the probable location of Akhenaten's original tomb. It's not much, a staircase, doorway, and corridor descending into the earth, terminating in a dead end. Work obviously started late on this project, and finished quite abruptly. With that kind of depth, we might be looking at just one or two years of work by a tiny team of masons chiseling away in the confined space. 
Unfortunately, the tomb is undecorated, because that was usually the last phase. So we can't be sure that it was for Akhenaten, but the dimensions of the monument are large enough to suggest a royal owner, and those with the expertise have suggested that the design of this tomb indicates a late 18th dynasty project. We know all of the other royal tombs belonging to this period, so this is possibly a tomb started by Akhenaten early in his reign, and then abandoned when he decided to leave Thebes for good. Then again, it might be the intended burial place of Akhenaten's successor, a queen who I'll come to later. Pharaoh probably started work on a mortuary temple as well. In western Thebes, archaeologists have found the traces of a monument which might have started as a funerary centre for the young king. Back when he still ruled under the name Amunhotep IV, the pharaoh may have intended to ensure his immortality in the same manner as his father, his father's father, his father's father's father, his father, and so forth. The mortuary temple of Amunhotep IV doesn't survive in any meaningful way, no architectural mounds or foundations to speak of. There are only a few hints of it in the area now occupied by the great mortuary temple of Ramesses II. That's the monument that we call the Ramesseum. The traces were identified by the French archaeological mission working in western Thebes, and they're so small that they don't give any information about the size, design, or scope of this project which suggests that whatever Akhenaten built here, it never got far beyond the planning or foundational stage. Just like his tomb in the Western Valley, the mortuary temple which he intended to build under the name Amunhotep remains a tiny shadow half-glimpsed in the ruins of the city he abandoned. Once he left Thebes and moved to Amarna, the pharaoh spent some time defining the limits of his new city. The community would need borders, an area of settlement, and a wider agricultural zone that would provide sustenance. Akhenaten started this process early. In his very first proclamations, the king addressed the need for limits and boundaries to set the new city in its place. Along with the list of buildings, the offerings to Aten, and the general description of his plans, which we've seen in the past two episodes, Akhenaten also took care to fix the boundaries of Arket Aten. He said, quote, I shall make Arket Aten for the Aten, my father, in this place. I shall not make Arket Aten south of it, north of it, west of it, or east of it. I shall not go past the southern stela towards the south, in order to make Arket Aten in that area. Nor shall I go past the northern stela, going downstream, in order to make Arket Aten there. Nor shall I make it on the western side. I will only make Arket Aten on the eastern side, the place which Aten himself made to be enclosed with the mountain, a place on which he may achieve happiness and on which I shall offer to him. This is that place. End quote. The pharaoh took care to determine exactly where the borders of Arket Aten, the horizon of Aten, would be. To the south, north, west, and east, he marked the limits of the community, each point identified by an immense boundary stela. There are 17 of these stela identified so far. In hindsight, 
this process was quite logical. A good way to determine where Aten's influence was supreme, and where the pharaoh's city was going to mark its presence. Every community in ancient Egypt had its patron deity, and we might look at this kind of text as simply giving Aket Aten its proper establishment. If Memphis was devoted to Ptah, and Heliopolis to Ra, then it made sense for the new area to be defined according to the Aten. However, these texts have also led to a few problems. This process, the speeches which the king made, have led to some unfortunate misunderstandings of what exactly he was trying to achieve. These problems have to do with Akhenaten's sense of place and his willingness to leave the new city at any point. You may have a vision of Akhenaten as a sort of fanatical recluse, a man who abandoned the world in order to make a place that was purely for himself and his god. That is true enough, but you may also have an idea of the king staying in this city forevermore and ignoring the rest of the world. Generations of historians have characterized Akhenaten as a sort of hermit, the type of person who found a place that he liked and then refused to leave it ever again. That is a slight misconception. What Akhenaten was actually saying was that he would not go north or south, east or west, in order to build the city anywhere else. When the king came to Aket Aten, he found an area that was naturally bound by cliffs and by the river, at least partially. But across the Nile, and to the south, there were open spaces, beyond which the limits of Aket Aten might become fuzzy if not properly demarcated. To a man like Akhenaten, who seems to have hated ambiguity, these kinds of loose boundaries were unacceptable. Pharaoh set a limit around his city which could not be tampered with in either direction. Other communities could not spread into Aket Aten, and Aket Aten would not spread out. The horizon of Aten would be contained within this zone, and everything that was in there belonged to the god and the king. In other words, Pharaoh was using the formula, I shall not go past, to refer to the cityscape of Amana, rather than to himself. Unfortunately, many observers have misunderstood the king's intentions here, which is surprising because in the very same texts, Akhenaten actually mentions plans for times when he would leave the city. In other sections of the boundary stelae, Pharaoh commanded his followers to make contingency plans in the event that he should die away from Aket Aten. Pharaoh allowed for the possibility that while travelling, he might not return, and to accommodate that situation, Akhenaten explicitly proclaimed, quote, If I should die in any town of the downstream, of the south, the west, or the east, let me be brought back so that I may be buried in Aket Aten. If the king's chief wife, Nefertiti, may she live, should die in any town, let her be brought back, so that she may be buried in Aket Aten. And, if the king's daughter, Merit Aten, should die in any town, let her be brought back, so that she may be buried in Aket Aten. End quote. The boundary stelae are an objective lesson in how faulty assumptions are born of faulty data. Popular conceptions of Akhenaten have been misled 
by incorrect readings of the texts. The idea that the king was a recluse, bound to his city and neglecting the wider world, is off the mark, at least to begin with. Instead, we have to see this situation with more nuance. Akhenaten was eager to control his territory, and that required defining it properly. And he always wanted to return to the city, but he acknowledged that he probably would have to leave, for different reasons and on different occasions. With that in mind, it's harder to see the king as a hermit, hidden away in his palace. Instead, I think we should recognise that he was, in many ways, an active governor and ruler, willing to connect with the other parts of his realm. At the very least, this was his mindset around years 5 and 6, when he first set himself up in Arket Aten. That may have changed later on, and we will come back to that as the story progresses. But for now, I think we should recognise that Akhenaten, a young ruler around 24 years old or so, was still very much an active participant in his own regime. Finally, I want to comment on how Akhenaten viewed his new community, how he thought about it. Arket Aten was supposed to be something grand, a vast royal centre with different facilities and amenities. Tombs, temples, shrines and palaces would spread across the landscape, and the king definitely had a particular vision that he wanted to implement. One interesting part of this, though, is what Akhenaten didn't say about his new home. Despite all the rhetoric of building monuments and institutions, Pharaoh neglected to use a specific word when describing his new community. You see, Akhenaten never called this place a city. The ancient Egyptian word for city is newt, or new in late Egyptian. Akhenaten never uses that word. In all his surviving texts, Pharaoh talks about the place as either Arket Aten or simply this place. That's it. For whatever reason, he never spoke of his plans in terms of a city, a community, an urban space. It's almost as if he imagined something quite different. In the surviving texts, Pharaoh is specific about the structures that he wanted. He described palaces, the house of rejoicing, and the apartments of king and queen. He described temples, the house and mansions of Aten. He talked about a royal tomb, and smaller shrines or sunshades for members of the royal family. These were all facilities associated with royalty, the kind of structures one would find in a palace complex or the Valley of the Kings. Akhenaten doesn't make any mention of houses for people, of estates for government, of tombs for courtiers and officials, or the kind of agricultural centres he would need for supporting his community. Of course, he was aware of those needs, but in his official proclamations, the king made no mention for anything beyond the royal necessities. It's possible that Akhenaten viewed his new home not as a city, but more like a palace on a grand scale. The facilities which the king demanded were all institutions relating to the pharaoh and the sun god. Perhaps, in his mind, what he was creating wasn't so much a community or urban environment, but rather an enormous palace spread across many miles. People might be attached to this palace, 
but it was not a city in the conventional sense. The best analogy I can think of, and French historians please forgive me, is that Arquette Arten may be similar to Versailles, the palace residence developed by Louis XIV southwest of Paris. Versailles is not a city in the sense that Paris is a city, it is a royal residence. And while the business of government or city-related matters might be discussed there, Versailles acted as a focus of power, for courtiers and officials to visit the king, mingle with one another, and negotiate their relationships. This is far away from the modern concept of the capital city, and it's something we have to be aware of when discussing pre-modern societies. Ancient power structures were different, the organisation was different, and the ways that they manifested in the landscape and in architecture were also quite different. We're going to explore this concept repeatedly and in more detail over the coming centuries of the podcast narrative. Now that we're in the New Kingdom, we have a lot more evidence for the royal centres, the places where power was concentrated. And as we go through the Amarna period, and then into the Ramesside period, I can discuss the relationships between the powerful and the king in much more detail. I don't want to labour the point, but it's worth keeping in mind that Arket Aten, Amarna, was not necessarily viewed as a city in the way that we might think of them. Its function was not to provide homes or employment for people, or even to concentrate resources in an efficient manner. Arket Aten was there to serve the pharaoh, to serve his family, and to serve his god. All of the resources, including people, were organised around that central need. So you might call Arket Aten a palace city, rather than a traditional urban environment. It's an academic distinction, but it might help us get into the mindset of what Pharaoh was intending. When he looked at this place, he might not have seen people, houses, suburbs and communities. Maybe he saw an extended royal palace, with its servants and courtiers mixed in among the institutions. The city of Aket Aten, the city of Amana, may have been conceived as one giant palace, serving the needs of God and King. When Akhenaten came to his new home, he found an empty expanse of desert and a small farming community. Within a few years, his subjects would transform that space into a vast collection of palaces, temples, houses, and industrial facilities. Their efforts were amazing, both in the scope and the speed of what they accomplished. Although Pharaoh gets most of the limelight, we must give these people their due. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, we will begin to introduce some of the individuals who served Pharaoh and helped make his vision reality. Next time, I want to start exploring the homes and suburbs of Amarna, beginning with a man who oversaw the king's workers and helped to orchestrate the thousands of tasks required for the king's great projects. Join me soon for episode 115, tentatively titled The House of Hatiai. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed this little side chapter. May the Aten shine upon you. I will see you soon.
What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.